The year is 1520 in Cambridge, England. As you can see, the smoke coming through the small houses in that town. Inside is Sarah Smith. She's 31, but looks 70. Her hair is lank and filthy. She has three teeth. Her skin is dark from the smoke of a thousand cooking fires. And the baggy gown she wears is dirty and torn. Tugging at her hem is little Michael. Uh, He's two. He's barefoot, wearing nothing but a coarse woolen smock. And his arms and leg are covered with open sores. Five of Sarah's eight children have died in infancy. Too undernourished and feeble to withstand normal childhood diseases. Now there's only Mark, nine, Hannah, who's five, and Michael, for death and disease have stalked Sarah's life and the lives of her small family. Her husband Harry is in the blacksmith shop, wearily banging out another set of horseshoes. The sun is going down low, and he can hear the bells of Holy Trinity as they chime. He stops. He crosses himself. Shuts down the shop, wraps up his day work, and trudges home. And the supper that awaits him is the same evening meal that Sarah, and it's all they can afford to prepare, that she has prepared a thousand times, is a bowl of coarse gruel. No wonder Harry can scarcely muster the energy to limp to the shop in the morning. His hungry body is is, used up by 35. Daily bread barely keeps him alive. And so on Sundays, the Smiths trudge down a couple blocks past the timbered inns and shops to the parish church of Holy Trinity. Here is their weekly doorway into another world where they come to watch the miracle that brings the very blood of Jesus down upon the altar. The presence of God Almighty in the parish church fills Harry and Sarah with awe and fear, but brings no comfort. They don't understand the service, because the service is in Latin. Now, the the students from the university understand it, and the church's official language in Latin, and it's strictly forbidden at that time to have the Bible or to pray in the common vernacular in corporate worship. And so they don't understand a word that's being saying, but when the bells are rung, they stop. They see the host lifted to be consumed only by the priest, not the laity, except a couple times a year, maybe, at most. They witness that miracle. They know something special is happening. If their God is powerful and mighty who is able to heal crippled diseases and restore diseased limbs to health, it's not clear to Harry and Sarah that this God regards them with any other attitude but scorn. Covering the walls of Holy Trinity are garish paintings of the Last Judgment. Ravenous demons are dragging peasants, kings, monks into the mouth of hell. No one escapes hell, at least in these paintings. Evidently, the human race is absolutely rotten without a single exception. Now, mind you, 
Father Henson, the parish priest, preaches sermons that offer Harry and Sarah a tiny loophole. If you do your very best to live a godly life, says Father Henson, then God will pour your, his grace into your souls when you hear the Mass. And grace will help you to still do more good works and build up the habit of virtue. Then on your dying day, if you're good enough, God may let you off the hook with no more than a few million years in purgatory, which is the place that's suspended between heaven and hell. Now, what does doing your very best mean? Father Henson's very specific about that. When you ask him, God wants you to do good works like lighting candles for a loved one in the back of Holy Trinity or buying an indulgence that will let you off maybe a couple thousand years in purgatory. Or perhaps if you really want some extra insurance, make a pilgrimage to Rome. Harry walks away, shaking his head. He can't, he can't rub two copper coins together, much less take a pilgrimage to Rome. He can't put anything in the offering blocks. It sounds to him as though heaven is for the wealthy and the devil just takes the poor. Sunday after Sunday, Harry and Sarah and the children trudge home after Mass, depressed, hopeless, facing another week of hunger, fear, and pain. But across town, at the White Horse Inn, is a band of priests and scholars who are discussing today's Romans text around a table over a nice tankard of ale and roast mutton. They call this group Little Germany because these guys would be key roles in the coming English Reformation, including William Tyndale, Robert Barnes, and of course, the one we're talking about, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, who already by 525 had included in his prayers for the abolition of papal power over the Church of England. Their text as they went around that morning is Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This message begins breaking through to Cramer and his friends will not only rescue he and his friends and these scholars from the bondage that was the medieval church at the time, but will bring a word of hope to Harry and Sarah, to England, to the rest of the world in the midst of a suffering time. Thomas Cranmer was born 66 years earlier in July 2nd, 1489 in Alsastum, Nottinghamshire. Uh, far from the intrigue of court life, which he knew in his adult life, he was a lower form rank of gentry, but he was high enough on the food chain in English society that he could go to college, he and his brother. And so they were slated for church work. That's what they were going to do. And so he would, he would, Cramer would later in life blame his marvelous and cruel schoolmaster for his lack of ability as being a student. Cramer attended Cambridge from 1503, and in 1510 he became a fellow, which means he was a, a teacher and, and 
and salaried professor there at Jesus College in Cambridge. Problem is, he fell in love, and clergy not being able to marry, he got married to the beautiful barmaid Joan, and so he had to give up ordination. But his wife Joan died within a year of their wedding, giving birth in in childbirth. And so Cranmer came back, and he was restored to his fellowship, and he became an ordained priest and threw himself into studies, becoming an outstanding theologian and a man of immense, though not original, learning. In about 1520, he joined these scholars every week to talk about what was coming across the channel from Germany, that salvation was not something that we earn, but it's a gift given to us, and we walk in that good news of Jesus to be a blessing to the world. It's salvation by grace alone, but it doesn't remain alone. It changes us. And it started to change them. And so all of a sudden, Cramer started to have real leanings towards this budding reformation in Europe when a plague hit the town. So he and a couple students, you would do this back then. If a plague hit the town, you got out of town. So he's out of town, and the king, as you all well know, Henry VIII, was probably the biggest scumbag king of England's history. He, as, as ignoble as his re- reasons were for founding the Protestant Anglican Church of England, what he meant for evil, God meant for good. Because there was a, a young, not young at this time, but Cranmer came along and assisted in this mightily, as you shall see. The king was trying to get a divorce and was having an argument with the Pope, as you know. He was married to Catherine of Aragon, and she couldn't produce him a son. And he was already shacking up with Anne Boleyn. And he wanted to marry Anne Boleyn and couldn't get an annulment for his marriage. The Pope wouldn't do it. So he sent emissaries around asking the clergy all over England, what should I do? And these emissaries came to Cranmer's cottage outside of Cambridge, where Cranmer told the emissaries, you know, what does the king care about what the Pope says? Why don't you just go poll the princes of Europe and the clergy in Germany? And they went back to the king, and Henry VIII said, great idea, send Cranmer. (laughs) So you got to remember, there's no idea of personal freedom. There's no ideas of, I can, my life is my own, I am my sovereign's. So, Thomas Cranmer, armed with a war chest of, of bribery money, <laughs> went to Europe to talk to the royalty of Europe and the clergy of Europe and get to know these Germans, where he was fully solidified in salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone. And while in Germany, he got remarried. Now remember, clergy weren't allowed to get married, right? Right? The king didn't know, because the king is still Roman Catholic at the time. But all of a sudden, the, 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 the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is the head of the Church of England, died. So King Henry VIII needed a new one. Who do you think he appointed? Cranmer. Called him back. There's a problem. He's married. Can't bring the missus back with him, so he leaves her in Germany. 
because you don't disobey the king back then. So he goes and he goes back to England where, over a period of time, and remember, Cramer was a flawed man. He approved the annulment of the marriage of Catherine of Aragon as null and void. Blessed the wedding of Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII. And it is said that nobody on the face of the planet loved Henry VIII more than Thomas Cranmer. But he's a Protestant with a, with, a, with a Roman Catholic king. But the king wanted to stick it to the Pope. So he said, all right, let's have a service in English. Because Cranmer had been whispering in his ear, your majesty, the people can't even understand the mass. So they he decided to do for the English church what Luther had done for the German people in their Bible. The English people already had Tyndale's Bible starting to circulate in the New Testament. So he decided to put the church's worship in English. So in 1549, he crafted the first Book of Common Prayer. You can buy them. It's basically Roman Catholic theology communion service in English. But then Henry VIII died. And his 11-year-old son comes to the throne. Now I want you to imagine your sovereign, your king, is 11 years old. But he's been schooled his whole life by Protestant biblical priests. And he's a Protestant. And he wants this good news of Jesus salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone to get out to the nation. So they redid the prayer book in 1552 to a thoroughly, thoroughly, wonderfully reformed theology prayer book. Now when I say reformed theology, what I mean by that is the Reformation doctrine set to prayer for the English people. Now can you imagine if you're Harry and Sarah, instead of Hearing these songs, my father plays better dominoes than yours does, you know. Which you, instead, you hear it in English, you know. You hear everything in English for the very first time, and you hear when you come to communion, Almighty God, to whom all hearts are known, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we, as we gather together as your family, may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. They never prayed like that before. They understood every word. When they came to the communion table in the service, it's, it's, it's the doctrine that Jesus is present in the Lord's Supper. We thoroughly believe that Jesus is present, but we don't go as far as our friends in Rome do because it can't be proven by Scripture. But to deny that there isn't a mysterious presence in the Lord's Supper is denying something that we know as believers. And so we don't, we, it's a mystery. <laughs> and when we pray the prayer of humble access, each and every time we take communion, Father, we're not worthy to come to, this, to gather the crumbs under your table, but you are the same God whose nature is to always have mercy. Grant us, O oh, gracious Father, that we may drink the body 
I mean, eat the body of your son, Jesus Christ, and drink his blood. We're, t we're using that language so that a Baptist might come into your service and think, wow, you guys are kind of Catholic. We would say, okay, fine, thank you, appreciate that. Because we believe Jesus is truly there in a mysterious way. And that's what that prayer is reflecting in the theology. And next week, we're going to take communion together. Can't wait. And so it started to spread like wildfire. And he recognized several things. Number one, the clergy were poorly trained. So he wrote a book of homilies. These are shorter sermons to be read in the pulpits all over England so that the people will be thoroughly equipped for the work they've been called to do. You can get, an, you can get one on Amazon, Cramer's Book of Homilies, but when you buy one, you better duck. <laughs> it is thoroughly robust. Call you to repentance theology, because he wants people to know the good news of Jesus all over the country. And they did, and people started to come to faith. He then took the Psalm, book of Psalms and crafted them so that they could be read in the church every day, all the Psalms, the entire Psalter in one month. He crafted a lectionary so that the Bible would be read, the Old Testament through in a year, the New Testament twice in a year, so that people could come to morning prayer, come out of the fields for noonday prayer, come out of the fields for evening prayer, and even though they couldn't read, they could sit and hear the good news of Jesus and the whole entirety of Scripture would be read for God's people in the Church of England. All the doctrine of transubstantiation, indulgences, purgatory was, was proven in noticing that it was not biblical doctrine. It was taken out of the church. But the problem in later... In 1553, Edward VI died. And they tried to get Lady Jane Grey, a distant cousin, to be the queen, but nine days later she was deposed. And then all of a sudden, Catherine of Aragon's daughter, Mary Tudor, became the queen of England. She was a devout Roman Catholic, and she triumphantly entered London. And with her accession the English Reformation began to unravel. Cranmer's embittered enemy, Stephen Gardiner, was promoted to the chancellorship and Cardinal Reginald Pole became the Archbishop of Canterbury. And immediately under her reign, the Parliament repealed the acts of Henry VIII and Edward VI, got rid of the Book of Common Prayer, put back in the Latin Mass, and instantly introduced what we call heresy laws. If you were openly teaching heresy, you were destined to die by being burned at the stake. So she went on a relentless campaign against the Protestants, they were called. So Cramer, in the meantime, had been charged with treason, and in November 1553 was placed in prison. And his trial, however, was a pretext. The queen and her advisors wanted to destroy him and his... Uh, advisor and his credibility completely for his long-standing Protestantism. His two good friends, Nicholas Ridley, Bishop of Rochester, and Hugh Latimer, Bishop of Worcester, who was also a chaplain to Edward VI, as Edward VI was a young boy, were moved in prison to Oxford in 1554. Cramer's in jail, 
His good friends are in jail. And his good friends in Oxford is where they particularly chose on Smithfield Street to burn publicly all leaders of the Anglican Reformation. On October 16, 1555, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer were sentenced to death. And as they were tied to the stake about to be burned, Latimer turns to Ridley and says, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. For we shall this day in England that by God's grace shall never be put out. That word started to spread. <laughs> but it wasn't over. Pressure kept going on Thomas Cranmer because she wanted him to recant everything that he had been teaching for the past 15 years. So under pressure, intimidation, some torture, the old man Thomas Cranmer put to pen these words. I, Thomas Cranmer, anathematize every heresy of Martin Luther and Zwingli. I confess and believe in one holy Catholic visible church. I recognize it as its supreme head upon earth, the Bishop of Rome, Pope and Vicar of Christ, to whom all the faithful are bound subject. And he concluded, I beg and pray God to deign of his goodness to forgive me the faults I have committed against him and his church. His humiliation was complete. But she didn't care. She was going to burn him anyway. And so on March 21st, 1556, at 9 a.m., he was led out of his jail on a fierce rainstorm. And he was taken to St. Mary's Church where he was going to pronounce his recantation publicly to all the people of Oxford. In his shirt were two drafts of what he would say. A papal version and a Protestant version. So he stands up and Cole looked at him and said, Master Cranmer, I pray you that you will perform what you promised long ago, namely that you would openly express the true and undoubted profession of your faith. Cranmer knelt with the congregation in prayer and he rose he took out a piece of paper. He thanked the people for their prayers and exhorted them in four points. To care less for this world, more for the next. To obey their sovereigns out of a fear for God. To, good, to be good to all people and to be concerned for the poor. And then he said these words. I now for as much as come to the last end of my life whereupon hangs all my life past and all my life to come. I shall therefore declare unto you my very faith, how I believe, without any color or dissim dissimulation. He then stated the words of the Nicene Creed, and then he said these words, I come to a, the great thing that troubles my conscience more than any other thing that I ever said or did in my life. And that is setting abroad of writings contrary to the truth, which here I now renounce and refuse, as things written with my hand, contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart, and written for fear of death, to save my life, if it may be. And that is all such bills which I have written or signed with my own hand since my degradation, 
wherein I have written many things untrue. And for as much as my hand offended in writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall be first be punished. For if I may come to the fire, it shall be first to be burned. Loud murmurs started in the crowd at this time. And as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and Antichrist with all his false doctrine. And that was all. They stormed the stage. They ripped him from the stage. And he started to run at 72 years of age, outpacing. It's a 15-minute walk from St. Mary's to Smithfield Street. He made it in five minutes. Sprinting. Out, it's like a Monty Python cartoon. You know, the Spanish friars are sprinkling holy water on him, trying to keep up with him. You know? It was, you think of it, you go, really? But they were sincere. They were thinking they were being merciful. Say, Lord, have mercy on him. Lord, have mercy on him. Because the, the whole burning at the stake practice was saying, maybe you'll get a few thousand years off by suffering a death this way. So he came to the fires in Smithfield Street in Oxford, England, where they asked him as they tied the stake to keep his right hand off. And he held it out as the flames started to ascend. And it burned literally to a stump. He used it once to wipe his, wipe his brow, and he looked up in the sky and he yelled, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Why would he, why would he recant? Why would he do this? My friends, the Reformation started by an understanding of going back to what the early church always believed. Look at Romans 3.23. It's in the back of your bulletins with me. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Continuing. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Salvation is a gift that God offers to you. When you give your kids a gift, if they looked back up at you and said, No, thank you, not this Christmas, you can keep it, how would you feel? That's the first thing. It's a gift, it's given to you freely. And not only that, it's to be received. We don't accept Jesus as our Savior and Lord. How in the world are we saying there's anything acceptable in us? We receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord by faith. And that faith is not meritorious. We don't say, well, I place my trust in Jesus as if my faith is meritorious. That very faith is a gift. We come with open hands saying, Lord, have mercy. Thank you that you're my Savior. And he's a propitiation. That's a biblical word. There are those in Christendom in America that would say, don't use such language. The, the people won't understand it. Hogwash. You're not stupid. Propitiation. Let me tell you what it is. It's the erasing of your sins by Jesus on the cross dying for you. He takes your sins upon himself. And that's not all. He takes his righteousness. When you have placed your trust in Jesus, he puts his righteousness on you. So that when God looks at you, he says, righteous, justified, 
my beloved child. Go be a blessing. That doesn't get you excited? If that doesn't get you excited, you don't have a pulse. <laughs> or you're not listening. Or you don't have ears to hear. I pray you do. The point is, that's what Jesus has done. And Cramer understood that and wasn't going to rest until all of England understood it. The Reformation was ugly. <laughs> really ugly. It took about 150 years from early 1500s to late 1600s for it to flesh out. And, and shortly after that, the church went lukewarm again. And we'll talk about that when we get to Wesley in a few years. <laughs> uh, my friends, it's not on our abilities. It's based on God's ability through us and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's remember Cranmer and the gift that he is, flawed as he was. Let's remember the gift that he is, that we have great heroes whose shoulders we stand on to pass this along to others, pass it along to our children, because somewhere along the way, someone shared their faith with you. And it cost them to do so. May we embrace that cost. May we love the Lord, love one another, locked arm in arm with a new reformation, God willing, in our land. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for this day and grateful for what you've done. It is said that if you go to Holy Trinity today, there's a, there's a placard there that says, although these stones are ancient, we believe here at Holy Trinity that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we preach the unchanging gospel about an unchanging Lord, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Lord, may we take this good news of Jesus and be transformed to walk in the good works that you have prepared for us to walk in to show the evidence of our justification and salvation. For your honor and glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>